We um, continue in the Gospel of Mark, fifth chapter today. Remember that the sermon series throughout the whole time is yes, and what we will get to at the end of the Gospel of Mark is God's yes. Uh, Karl Barth, remember, is the one who said that God's yes to the world is the resurrection of Jesus. Even the sacrifice of Jesus is not God's yes. It takes this uh, miracle, this remarkable moment where the dead comes to life. And that's God's yes. That's God's affirmation of all that God has made in creation. I um, just was reminded as Harry uh, prayed for, uh, for, uh, the, uh, for Jimmy Carter and led us in that. I, I, had a, I had an opportunity to meet Jimmy Carter some years ago. I was part of the Board, board of Habitat for Humanity here in Orange County. And at the time, out by our church in Tribuco, we were building the largest single habitat project in the United States. And it was 48 units, six buildings of eight units each. I think that's the right math. And, um, and for the groundbreaking, we invited Jimmy Carter to come and to speak. And he was down at a build in Tijuana, which might be the largest build ever in Tijuana. And he came up, he flew up on a helicopter to our site, landed that helicopter, and then they whisked him away afterwards. But um, I was up there, I was leading music, and I was sitting here, and my friend Joe Perrin and Linda, Joe was the president of Habitat, and then it was Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. And I was close. Not six degrees of separation, just there. (laughs) So I took my bulletin, and I said, Joe, can you get me his autograph? So the bulletin goes down, and it goes to, to Joe, and then to Linda, and then to Jimmy and Rosalind. Back to me. It was my birthday. And what he wrote was this, to my best friend Joe Perrine. <laughs> it's the story of my life. Just want you to know, close, but no cigar. Didn't get there. Well, anyway, yeah, I still have a signature. <laughs> Somewhere in some file um, to Joe, his good friend, Joe Perring. Um, who is my good friend? Fifth chapter of Mark, verses 1 through 20. Story we know well. Hopefully we'll have uh, something new to think about with it. Uh, Jesus and the others came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with chains, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains. Chains and the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him anymore. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling, bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, 
What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was on the hillside a great herd of swine feeding. And the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swine herds ran off and said, set it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. But Jesus refused, said to the man, go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Pray with me. God, I'm aware that we can all be amazed and then we can be split on whether we're happy or not. Help us, God, to be amazed once again at your power over evil May we side with you. In Jesus' name, amen. And when the demoniac saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg of you, by God, do not torment me. Jesus' presence, the very presence of his authority, calls the evil powers of the world out into the open. By the contrast between the wholeness Jesus is bringing to the world and the chaos represented in the Gerasene demoniac in this man of this village couldn't be clearer. Jesus doesn't participate in the system. 
He doesn't ignore it. He confronts it. Jesus doesn't get his authority, his identity, his orientation from the world. He gets it from God. In contrast, the demoniac is the embodiment of the sickness of the world of their community. He's an embodiment of the sickness, of the oppression of the people of Israel. He is the embodiment of the oppressive coercion and occupation by Roman power. Everyone feels it. This man lives it. When asked his name, what does he say? My name is Legion, for we are many. And it's not a mistake that he takes the name Legion. Because a legion is a division of uh, Roman soldiers. There were about, I think, 5,600 or so um, soldiers to a Roman legion. So when you get to the end of the story and, and the, the powers that are inside of this man are, depart him and go into the swine, it says that there were 2,000. There were multiple um, demons that that left this man and went into the swine it was a legion it's not a mistake that he's called legion because he again is the embodiment of the oppressive nature and coercion of the Roman government the strength of what possessed the man was greater than his ability to resist. It was greater than the community's ability to bind him. No one could touch him, not even together. And in a sense, the man's life was a bit of a metaphor for them about how it felt to be under the thumb of Rome. He would wrench apart his leg and arm irons, his shackles that he had, and the chains he would rip apart, and they couldn't subdue the man, and there was nothing they could do about Rome. Nothing they could do about the power and the violence that kept them in check. And so rather than feel that as a community, this one man embodied it out in the tombs, I have a friend, Bob Bennett, who wrote a, a great song about the man of the tombs and coming out and being healed. And it's this remarkable tune of just the transformation from one to the other. Why do I say, though, that he's the embodiment of the community's oppressed violence? Well, in communities, in nations, in families, in households, in relationships, in places where there is um, dysfunction, where there is this sense of chaos in a system, there's often an individual where 
blame is affixed on them. They're what's called in, in some circles the identified patient. Maybe some of you have been in families like that. Um, I've, I've known families that will have one of their children is always sick. One of them, their children is always the problem. One of them is always in trouble. And the rest of the family unconsciously keeps the family system going, and this person is the black sheep, is the identified patient, is the one person that they all focus on as being the problem. And they do it so they don't have to take responsibility for their part in keeping the system going. They were the scapegoat. Probably a better word. All the feeling, all the angst of the system in that village was focused on this person. And it was real. Every morning on Sunday, I wake up and I open my news app on my phone and I look to see what violence has been committed in our country overnight to know what thoughts and prayers we need to offer today. And I can honestly say that I don't think I wake up very many Sunday mornings when there hasn't been a night of violence the night before. And this morning I woke up to violence in Memphis, gun violence. I woke up to gun violence on Friday. I woke up to it on Saturday. We do it every time there's a shooting. Rather than take responsibility ourselves as citizens, we identify the shooter as the problem. Not the guns that they're using. We blame mental health. This person's obviously not well. And it keeps us from dealing with our idolatry. Remember, I've said it on a few occasions, idolatry is the number one sin listed in the Bible. It's the number one thing that God is against is putting things, anything, any person, any object, any philosophy ahead of God or on equal footing with God. And I know some of you are gun owners, and I, I'm, not, I'm not here to, to tell you what to do with them. I'm not here to tell you I, my, my brother-in-law is a hunter in northern Minnesota. My, I've, got, I've got family and friends. I, I respect their use and their rights and all this. But we collectively will blame the shooter and then decide there's nothing we can do about it. Not a thing. 
Otherwise, it would stop. Because there's millions of people, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in the United States that believe this is wrong. Wrong to not act about gun safety. It keeps us from dealing with the idolatry. And so what's the idolatry? That somehow we've got it into our heads that, that to protect us, to protect our individuality, which, by the way, is not a Christian value, individualism. It doesn't show up in the Bible as a value that's good. It actually is a sign of our sinfulness that we see ourselves apart from each other. We're to see ourselves together with each other. But to protect our individual rights, we say that this part of being able to access guns for everybody will protect our rights, will protect our person. And what that is is an idol. Because it says deep down in you and me that God's not enough. God's not powerful enough or good enough or strong enough. We have chains that we can't bind this violence with. And so we, we just say, well, it's mental health. The debate over reasonable gun safety is held hostage to our idolatry. That we need these things for our protection, dear Christians. God alone is our strength. I don't care what part of theology you come from, conservative, progressive, or whatever. When I tell you that God is our strength, it's your value when you say you follow Jesus. But I'm not here to make this sermon about that. That's an example. I can come up with a million examples of idols that keep us in our dysfunction. My dad had on his table all the time some manner of book that was about getting rich quick. It was either that or Westerns. You know. And so he, I mean, he, it was always about, I'm going to make it. I'm going to get secure. And he never could trust in the God that his mother had for him. He was always rebelling. The powers are exposed. Jesus brings not only evil out into the open and into the light, but also brings release to the captives. So the story doesn't end just by naming it or just noticing it, not just noticing this man. But there's something really important about the kingdom. Is God powerful enough to undo our shackles? Is God powerful enough to release us from our addictions, from our idols, from the things that consume us as human beings? Is God strong enough?
Legion is dismissed. And then you have this person sitting there in their right mind clothed. What a dramatic change. From raging lunatic out in the tombs, barely dressed, which is a scandal in itself, to sitting there fully clothed in their right mind. No more chaos, but order. In fact, that's the value of the kingdom, right? So it says at the beginning of Scripture in Genesis, we, we get the story that, that, um, that the beginning, the beginning, there was chaos over the waters. And in creation, God brings order out of chaos. Jesus' authoritative word is enough to dismiss legion. Jesus is not violent or coercive. Jesus cares for the man, not for his own reputation. Jesus is not concerned about his standing in the culture. He's not concerned in what people will say about him or think about him. He is there to bring order out of the chaos for others. To confront evil with good. If the person, if the demoniac is the embodiment of the cultural captivity of Israel, then this person is also the example of their potential freedom. We can all be in our right minds. We can all be made whole. We can be freed by Jesus' word. We can trust Jesus and follow. But it comes with a cost. What happens? News spreads, gets back to the town, and now everybody comes out to see what's happened. They compare notes. They get reports on the news what took place. And they come to Jesus and they beg him to leave. The kingdom of God is not good news. if your trust is in your own ability to secure your own safety. If that's what you believe, then belief in Jesus is a threat to your very existence. If you've built up your life to be a self-made individual, which there's no such thing, by the way, somebody had a hand in you getting to where you are. You didn't do it on your own. I was reminded of that as an associate pastor. Jesus has come to break the bonds. Your bonds and my bonds that keep us shackled to a lie. 
that we can secure our own future. That's why we have offerings. And we have charity. How does that relate? Well, it loosens our attachment to what we think is important and powerful. Money and self-determination. If I have enough, I'll be okay. If I have enough in retirement, if I take and preserve my stash, I'll be all right. I'll make it to the end. My children won't be too burdened. A little burdened. That's good for them. And we're asked to be generous. The problem of dysfunction in systems and in families is that we all find our place in the system, and once we find it, we get really comfortable there. I, I, I grew up in a dysfunctional household. I'm not alone in that. A lot of you have. A lot of you still are in those places. And we get safe and secure knowing our place in it. And it's miserable when someone decides they're not going to play along. So all that you have to do in a system to upset it is to have one person confront the craziness and call it for what it is. One person that stands up to dad and says, no, I'm not going to do what you want because what you want's crazy. You're behaving badly. Why don't you deal with yourself? That was my oldest sister. It didn't go well for the rest of us. But once you make peace with chaos, sanity and truth and wholeness are a threat to your existence and you believe they will kill you. The people had made peace with Legion. They actually stopped trying to bind him and tie him up. And he had the run of the hills. They all knew his place. They were more willing to live with his captivity and with the chaos he presented and even the danger perhaps that he presented. They were happy to live with it because they knew where it was coming from. They would rather live with him being subject to the chaos that they wanted to avoid. They were fine with him never being whole. When you don't have to play by the rules of the chaos in the family, the family will fight back to keep its status quo. And they come out to Jesus and say, please go away. Each time my sisters, actually each one of, our, of the kids in my family, when we got to a place where we could leave, we all left. As soon as we turned 18, we were gone. Because we couldn't change the system. The chaos reigned. And we weren't willing to stay and play by the rules. It's not a great way to live. It wasn't a great decision, maybe. 
It's what we did. But isn't what Jesus comes to do is to break our dependence and our trust in the status quo and trying to keep things the way they are because we found our place and we'd rather be in a chaotic situation than have the responsibility of being made new. What's the line in the hymn? To break the power of sin and sadness, to drive the dark of doubt away. Eventually, Rome was converted. It becomes the Holy Roman Empire at some point. Leslie Newbegin, missionary from, from Britain to India, southern India, theologian, missionary, good Christian person, writes this. He says, The victory of the church over the demonic power which was embodied in the Roman imperial system was not won by seizing the levers of power. It was won when the victims knelt down in the Colosseum and prayed in the name of Jesus for the emperor. Get that in your head. The grip of Roman imperialism wasn't broken when Christians seized the levers of power. It happened before Constantine. It was one when the victims knelt down in the Colosseum before their own death and prayed in the name of Jesus, not for themselves, but for the emperor. The soldiers in Christ's victorious army were not armed with the weapons of this age. They were the martyrs whose robes were washed in blood. It was not a particular emperor who was discredited and replaced. It was that the entire mystique of the empire, its spiritual power, was unmasked, disarmed, and rendered powerless. as Christians trusted their Lord. It was the transformation of the followers of Jesus that transformed the Roman Empire for a while. Remember the observation I made a couple of weeks ago that no one is going to change as a result of our desires. In fact, they will not they will resist our efforts to change them simply due to the coercive aspect of the interaction. People will and do resist us when we use the methods of this world, this culture, to try to get them to do what we want them to do. We move away from the spirit of coercion and replace the question, how do you get them to change? with what is the transformation required of me, of us. It's the question before this church as we keep going forward. 
what is the transformation required of us as God's people? To be set free from our fear of the future? To be set free from the effects of of decades of decline in churches across this country? To set us free from the anxiety that COVID brought with it and continues to bring to us? What transformation do we need to go through We can't be a finger-pointing, accusatory bunch that scolds the world. That's what everybody expects. But will we go forward as a congregation, as followers of Jesus, and look different than what is expected by others? Different. Because we lean into the power of Jesus to transform us from the inside out and behave differently than what a skeptical population out there, how they think we'll act. But it's going to cost us. It's going to mean dying to ourselves, to our place, and being raised up to new life, to God's yes, and then a discovery that he really can do this. Pray with me. God, we don't want to be dismissed by people out there. You've brought this church very far for a long time. And we pray that we will look to ourselves Ask the question, what should be transformed? And then ask you to do the transforming. 